Welcome to Marketing Mambo with your host, Terry McDougall. It's the fun and fast podcast where we cha-cha-chat with marketing movers and shakers from around the globe. Everybody, it's Terry McDougall with the episode two of Marketing Mambo. And I am so excited to have a guest today who is one of my mentors. It's scary to even say it, Steve, but we've known each other for decades. <laughs> I've got Steve Fleshman, who's the founder of DR2 with me today. And he is just a wealth of knowledge about many, many topics related to marketing. With over 35 years of direct response marketing under his belt, Steve is the founder and creative partner of DR2, a direct marketing graphic design consultancy. As former creative director for Capital One, Coast to Coast Resorts, EDS, Marsha McLennan, and SQN Communications Design, Steve is known for designing direct mail packages that get opened and email that not only gets click-throughs, but also donations. Among his greatest challenges and successes are conceptualizing and designing a Sigmund Freud lunchbox as the carrier for an invitation to lunch for prospective clients of a mental health HMO, an award-winning package including Old Bay seasoning to promote the use of a direct mail production facility employing the developmentally disabled, and membership mailings offering timeshares for camping spaces. Um, his achievements include creative teamwork that resulted in winning campaigns for Human Rights Watch, International Rescue Committee, AmeriCares, the Nature Conservancy, African Wildlife Foundation, Nuclear Threat Initiative, Defenders of Wildlife, and Children's National, to name a few. Steve is also a fine art printmaker specializing in relief and screen printing. Wow, Steve. Wow. <laughs> You were impressive, but wow. It's a mouthful. Um, well, Steve, hey, it's so great to talk to you. I mean, we, we met way back in, I think, like 1989 at one of my very early jobs, and you were the art director at an insurance administrator. Um, why don't I just give you the floor and, and tell us a little bit about you and what you're doing now? Okay. Well, um, I, uh, I've been doing fundraising for a long time, off and on. Um, I worked for insurance, I worked for uh, large banks, and um, I always joke that I need to uh, work on my karma, so I have to do something uh, that's altruistic and good for people. But, um, uh, so what I do is, is, is uh, I design direct mail fundraising and uh, direct uh, fundraising uh, digital communications. Sometimes it's social media, sometimes it's email. That's probably the easiest for people who don't know what digital encompasses. I, I had a, a client who said, oh, digital, that's just, that's email, right? It's like, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the iceberg. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Just a little bit. But anyhow, so I do that. Um, I've been doing that for a long time. I, um, I like to think, because uh, I, I heard from the president of one of the organizations that I, I work with, he said he likes uh, marketers uh, in fundraising because we give people the opportunity every day to be better people. And I said, oh, I'll take that. That sounds better than being like a hack who sends people junk in the mail. <laughs> but I think in a, in a way that's kind of true. That's kind of what I do. 
Um, and so I give people the opportunity to help good causes. I like to say, consider my clients are good causes. Um, at least they're good causes for me. Uh, a lot of them started out being uh, causes I donated to and to begin with, and that's how I got to know them. So, um, so that's uh, that's kind of who I am. I like you said, I've been doing this for a long, long time. Yeah, you you've always been uh, like a wealth of wisdom to me. I, I can remember when uh, we were first working together that you were teaching whoever wanted to learn about typesetting and fonts and types of paper. I mean, I feel like I sort of got my, you know, advanced degree in, in marketing and uh, printing just by working from you, or for you. <laughs> um, so, you know, how did you get your start in uh, the world of marketing? Wow. So um, <laughs> I, I, I ended up, I mean, nobody, nobody seems to fall into direct mail marketing. I mean, nobody ex tries to do it. You just kind of fall in. So um, I ended up falling into a membership camping company called Coast Coast Resorts, where we sold, sold timeshare camping spaces through the mail. That's where I got all that. And for, I, my boss had been a printer before he took this job. He was a printer in the army. His dad owned a print shop up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, almost Wisconsin. And so he knew all this stuff and I learned a lot from him. That was back in the stone ages when we used to kill our own antelope and right on the wall of the cave with its blood to do our marketing. But we had hired a company out of Norwalk, Connecticut. The guy, his claim to fame was he was the son of the father of direct mail marketing. His, his, his father marketed Bank AmeriCard, which I guess Visa became. Yeah, that's um, so funny. That's a, that's a blast from the past. <laughs> yeah, so he did that. He, he started doing that. He was the first person to do that through the mail. So this guy, you know, taught me a lot of stuff. He taught me was that everything is a lot of voodoo and smoke and mirrors and we don't know. I remember on our third step of a renewal series, the envelope was green and blue and striped. And they said, why do we do this? Why, you know, he's, because it works. <laughs> we don't know why it works. That's yep. why we do it. Yep. So, All about you know, testing, testing exactly, and learning. <laughs> exactly. So that's why I learned about testing. And that's where I learned about multiple variants and how to choose your audience. It's funny because our audience was exactly the same audience that the fundraising audience was when I walked into fundraising. Same age, same demographic and everything. I was kind of primed for that. It mm -hmm. kind of worked out. And I met you when we were doing insurance through the mail. Mm -hmm. So, you know. That was fun. Yeah, well, it's crazy it was, as it crazy as it sounds. I mean, we got to be really creative with insurance. <laughs> yeah, we we had a, we had a very fun team, and we got to do a lot, of, a lot of creative stuff. But that was, as I like to joke, that was back when print budgets were ridiculously high. I think we had a, what an eight million dollar print budget, and <clears throat> people loved us. Printers would take us to yes. lunch every week. Yeah, I liked it. We got the donuts brought in every week. Yeah, yeah, right. I Donut. know for, for a 20-something, a I got to go to a lot of the finest restaurants in yes. Washington, <laughs> Yeah, we, <laughs> thanks we, to we, all the printers that we bought printing from. Places we could never afford to go. <laughs> right, <on our> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was kind of nice. Never happens anymore. People contact me all the time through LinkedIn. Hey, Steve. I was like, I don't buy print. I don't have a budget. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny. It's so much easier nowadays to uh, measure return on investment, right? And, mm -hmm. and back then it took weeks often right. to measure and you really had to be in the mail all the time. And so a lot of times you were just kind of shooting from the hip and guessing about what worked, right? Because you had to wait for the business reply envelopes to come back in the mail. It wasn't instantaneous. 
Speaking of digital versus direct mail, why do you think direct mail still plays such a big part in nonprofit fundraising? Well, I three, three or four years ago, I'd have told you something very different. In fact, what I would have told you was it's the greatest generation and they still believe in mail and they read everything, which that letter is read, you know, cover to cover. They read everything and sometimes twice. They don't get a lot of mail and they don't get a lot of people to talk to. So this is, in fact, one of my writers, her cousin called her up because she had done some work for the Carter Foundation. And he said, hey, look, I got a letter from Jimmy Carter. I bet this signature is <laughs> worth something. So they do read everything and they, they check everything out. Now that generation is dying off and we have baby boomers. Yeah, like us, right. So, but the thing is, there's a difference about boomers. They want to know what they get for their money. Whereas the, the greatest generation could hand over the money and just trust that the organization would do a good job. No, we're pickier. We're much pickier with our dollars. And, and we might give, whereas the, the other people would give to many organizations, we might give to as many, and I say as many as four, you know, seriously, I mean, not, not a little bit of money here now, anyway, give a large donation, but those are ones we care about. We may be involved. Like I said, I am involved with some of the organizations that I work for. It's a cause they really care about. They want to be involved in ways more than just their pocketbook. You have to do more than you have to engage. So that's one thing. So that's why, why digital is a big deal for boomers, believe it or not. It's funny. It's like, oh, we don't know how to use an iPad and things like that, but we're really yeah, very digitally savvy. Right. But here's what's interesting is the millennials love mail. Mm. Absolutely <laughs> love mail because they've been snookered by a lot of digital scams and things mm. like that. It's easy to set up a digital storefront, but brick and mortar is a big deal. And they realize that mail costs a lot. It might cost you a dollar to put a piece of mail yeah. in the mail when you figure all the printing mm -hmm. and writing and designing and all the things that do. They recognize that that's an expense and it also makes you more legitimate for, mm. for yeah. millennials. The downside of that is they don't have any money yet. <laughs> they haven't made their way yeah. in the world yet. So they don't have a big bankroll, but we don't want to ignore them because they will. So you bring them along, you keep communicating with them. And right. Building the relationship. Building a relationship. Yes. Well, do you think that also, you know, just the novelty for that generation that are basically digital natives, that it's novel to get it, it is, it is absolutely novel. It's funny you yeah. say that. One of my clients, her favorite thing in the whole world is letterpress printed. Oh, right. You know, she didn't grow up with that. So anything that's letterpress, she thinks it's wonderful. Letterpress is, is for people who don't know, is actual metal type or a wood type. That, that actually raises up versus offset printing, which is, is done by printing onto another sheet and then printing onto the paper. Getting very technical. And yes, thank very you, Professor. Boring. It's reminding yeah. me of back when Getting we used to work Boring, together. yeah. I don't care. <laughs> I learned so I'm, much from you. I would, gosh, I can move remember. Move on, Steve, yeah. Four, right, four right. color process printing and all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How long have you been doing your own thing now? Oh, well, technically I never stopped. So it's been over 35 years, but I, I doing it in earnest and full-time since 2008. Okay. Uh, for, so really for the last 12 or 13 years. Yeah. 12 years. Maybe it's, I, I get back. It's 2007. It was right. Yeah. It's 2007. I'm trying to remember when my non-compete ran out. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I had a non-compete with my last agency. Uh -huh. And as soon as it ran out, all my former clients came and that's how I ended up opening my shop. I think that you're in a really unique position to talk about something that I've always kind of been 
curious about, and I think a lot of our listeners will be curious about this too. When I first got out of college, I had the aspiration to work for an ad agency. And I feel kind of blessed in some ways that I couldn't get any opportunities <laughs> to work for an ad agency because what I realized once I started working on the client side is what long hours and how you're so at the mercy of your clients and so forth that it's, that's a really tough career. And a lot of times people don't, you know, it's, it's a young person's career. <laughs> I, I know that you've worked on the client side, you've worked on the agency side, and you've also mm -hmm. had your own one-man agency. Mm -hmm. How would you compare and contrast these different types of work? Well, client side is, in retrospect, seems pretty nice, but that's looking back with a long lens. It's like, oh yeah, when you're there, it's like, oh, I have a boss. I hate my boss. You know, uh, it'd be great to not have a boss. Well, yeah. you always have a boss. I, I work for myself, and guess what? I have a lot of bosses, including myself. I joke that I am the best and the worst boss I've ever had, but you're always accountable to somebody. On the agency side, it's hard to, the thing about the agency side is it's really easy for, I see a lot of young people coming into the agency side and they think that it's a lot like waiting tables and that your job is to just take orders and fulfill whatever your client asks. Mm -hmm. And that's really not it. This is one of my pet peeves. We're not waitresses. We're not waiters. Yes, we want to do what the client asks, but we want to also keep them from making mistakes because that's the way we get fired. Mm -hmm. You know, because when that happens is you get blamed that, you know, you're the scapegoat. One of my major clients was scapegoating her agency because she was not doing a good job herself. And funny because the, the new agency came in, I was, I'm, I'm connected with them. And we started doing stuff. Unfortunately for her, her new boss would go to us to ask what was going on because he, we had a previous relationship with him and he found out that she was sandbagging everything all the way around. They brought in 165,000 new donations off of Donald Trump getting elected. And she, we wanted to do a mailing on that side because they, they were two different sides of the house, which is still a problem with nonprofits. We were, they seem to be segregated, digital versus mail. Oh um, yeah. That's, and, that, that's this, that happens in, you know, corporations too. Yeah. And, and, and they don't seem to understand that you're really working for the same, but anyhow, so digital was making a fortune. We wanted to capitalize on these digital people and bring them along in mail, because we know that if we can get a digital person into the mail stream, we can keep them longer and we can engage mm -hmm. them better. It also keeps them from being a one-off or, or what you might, some people might call a tipper. Oh, I want to give them a tip. I like them. Yeah. And oh, look, look, chimpanzees. I like them. You know, um, <laughs> right. no, that's my latest client. So when we asked her you know, about doing a, a Trump is elected campaign, she says, famine's easier. And so she wanted to hit the easy button. And that was the beginning of the end. I think they, they finally found that it wasn't the agency's fault. And I, I know the other agency and they're a very good agency. And uh -huh. they just had fallen into the, this, the throw up our hands and say, all right, whatever you want. And what happened? So in other words, they weren't really understanding the bigger business objective and being consultative and trying to understand what's the bigger objective and do we just take orders or do we come in and really provide you with a perspective based on our expertise? Exactly. I, I, just to, to defend the previous agency, they were doing that. She was just ignoring them. <laughs> you know, uh, so, okay. But it is, it, but now that she's gone, 
we have a whole bunch of people who who have Stockholm syndrome from when she was in charge and they're like, ah, they can't make decisions. They can't, you know, and so they just say, oh, I want to do this. And they expect us to do it really, you know, it's like, we, we need to counsel them and say, this is probably not the best way to go about it. This is not the right thing to do. Plus we also have to deal with an internal brand agency, which is also the bane of <laughs> our existence because I'll just get on my soapbox for a minute, even though I'm not off your topics, but <laughs> brand is great for, for commercial, for, uh, I, I think um, it makes sense when you want to revitalize your, your business, et cetera, and so forth. But I think brand has been the largest hoax perpetrated on nonprofits in the last couple of decades. There is no reason when you have equity in your brand to get a new logo or to rebrand or to do all that stuff. No, I mean, and in fact, once you rebrand, you need to support it so it becomes established. I think sometimes when people don't have a good idea about what they need to do from a strategic standpoint, the answer is like, hey, let's rebrand. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, brand obviously has a purpose, but it's really to work sort of as an umbrella over your lead generation or your revenue driving activity, right? I mean, that's really what, yep. what any organization is there for, including nonprofits, right? To, to drive revenue. So a quick sidebar, a new client I got and, and Save the Chimps, shout out to Save the Chimps, woot woot, because that's what they do, woot pant or whatever, I guess the chimpanzees do. <laughs> they have come up with a new logo, but they have a reason to. They have rescued all these chimpanzees and their old logo showed the chimpanzees stepping out of bars into grass. So the bars turned into grass. Well, they rescued all the chimps from all the labs that they can, and they're now caring for these elderly chimpanzees. So their mission has gone from one of rescue to one of care. Okay. So they've changed, they changed the logo and the logo is now a chimpanzee and he's holding his arm, but the shape in between his arms is a heart. It, it sounds hokey when I talk about it, but it's actually very beautiful. The designer did a wonderful job. And so it's the only time in my recent memory that I think that that actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, because it, they've changed their whole mission. So that makes sense. So, um, right. Otherwise, you people know you for who you are. They know they recognize stuff. You have to start all over. You're basically introducing yourself again. Let's introduce our new logo. We're doing that. Yeah, right it's sort of funny. It's sort of like when people get a makeover. Have you ever met somebody who either like lost a lot of weight or went through some drastic makeover, and then you see them and you don't even recognize them, <laughs> you know? And you're like, oh, uh, who is that? Right? It's that? it's shocking. Yeah, yeah, shocking. And that can be the same situation. But it is. It is. It takes it takes deep pockets. One of my clients. Their brand manager came from Coca-Cola. So his first order of business was rebrand. So, okay. And <laughs> he's done a really cohesive job of doing it. <clears throat> but we had to change our thought process. And people thought of us differently. They didn't know who we were. And so I'm not mentioning names, by the way, <laughs> for that one. I think it's taken a good three or four years. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. But, but now, you know, it's good. We're doing doing really well with them. But it's because... They understand integrated marketing. They understand how to mm -hmm. use they how to use digital and, and the mail and that evil word telemarketing, which actually mm -hmm. seems to still work, especially now with everybody stuck at home. Yeah. With the, for nonprofits. Now hmm, I've gotten so many spoofed calls and I have I've been asked to get uh, an extended warranty on a 2008 Pontiac. I've never owned a Pontiac and I've never <laughs> owned a car from 2008, but I've gotten 40 calls in the last two months. So you know, there's there's they still got a bad rep. And I think that the lockdown 
has been a boon for the telemarketing industry. But yeah, it works, especially with, with older people. You, you can get a hold of them and they want to talk on the phone. It's used sparingly. We definitely use it with our high dollar donors just mm -hmm. to kind of cultivate and keep sure. the relationship going. Cultural organizations still do it a lot too. You know, museums, uh, symphonies, uh, etc. Yeah, yeah, I've I've had some nice long conversations with people here in Chicago with the Lyric Opera. Right, <laughs> it's right. really nice. Yeah, yeah right. So, <laughs> so yeah, so the Pittsburgh Symphony and I are like this. Same with the Carnegie Museum <laughs> right. in Pittsburgh. But you have some amazing cultural organizations in Chicago. Oh yeah, um, for sure. In fact, you have a zoo there that I used to do marketing. The for. Lincoln Park Zoo, yeah, or I used, the, to, uh, I used to do stuff for Lincoln uh -huh. Park Zoo. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great and they do telemarketing too. So, uh -huh. um, but that's a whole different. Zoos are a totally different animal, and I mean that as a pun. But they're totally different. So you need to know your audience, and I'll just veer off there. So zoos, you think everyone's to go help zoos because they want to help the mission, they want to help save animals. No, they're young mothers who need something to do with their kids, and that's oh. that's the audience. I can totally see that. Yeah. yeah. So, so you just have to know your audience and know who you're talking to. Yeah, exactly. What's going to influence them to take mm -hmm. action. So, you know, let me ask you as an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. what are some of your biggest challenges? Cash flow is always a big challenge. You can have a ton of work. I don't usually bill until the project is in the mail. You know, it's off my desk and it's at the printer. And so that could be, could be weeks. It could be months in some cases. Mm -hmm. So you're working, 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 and you have a lot of potential, but not a lot of cash. So mm -hmm. that's really, so that's my biggest challenge is cash flow. One of the things I've done is one of my agencies that I work for requires me to do everything on a rush basis. Mm -hmm. I was able to leverage that into getting rush payment out of them. They've been really great about it. So they pay me in 10 days, which is outstanding. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. It, it helps a lot. And they're the largest part of my business. So that's helpful. Everybody else is 30 days. And there, that's, that's good. So do you structure your payment that way because it's fundraising and you want them to pay you when the cash flow starts coming in for them or? It's just, it, it, to me, it's okay. So copywriters in fundraising bill after they write the first draft, mm -hmm. boom, done. Yeah. And they will rewrite, most of them will rewrite forever. Well, mm -hmm. I don't want to rewrite, I don't want to redesign forever. It used to be three drafts and then the agency I worked for last decided we're going to be different. We're going to do five drafts. Well, all of a sudden, you know, the whole industry said, oh, it's five drafts, right? So, mm, oh God. Yeah. so now I have to do five drafts. Well, it could change drastically or keep going. Like one time I did 97 revisions. I mean, complete redesigns of just a pocket folder for one client now. And they had me bill in nine revisions thinking that was going to cover it. It was 97 different designs. That's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. I, just want to, I just want to wait till Till all the dust settles before I say, okay, here's what the full okay. bill is. Now with the, with the group I built in 10 days, I've started billing them after first draft. And then I build them again. If, if we go beyond five drafts, which mm -hmm. we do yeah. occasionally, but not often, but because I have a relationship with them, I can do that, but it's just a different world in graphic design. One of one person you and I used to work with used to say, well, if I build you a chimney over here and then you tell me I don't like it there and I have to tear it down and build it over here, I've built you two chimneys. You need to pay for two chimneys. You know, so I want to make sure that I'm billing for both chimneys, I guess. Is yeah, that. absolutely. That, that's so that's, totally that's the challenge. The other challenge is that design has become a commodity. And yeah, it's been happening for a long time. I remember back when we were first learning Cork Express. <laughs> it's so funny to think back, like the whole evolution that we've been through because you made getting hired at the place where we work together contingent on them buying Macs. 
and, right. and getting us set up to do graphic design on a Mac. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Right. I tell people every once in a while about the stacks of boards that used <laughs> to be on my desk because I was the print production manager and right. I'd have foot high stacks of boards for a 32 page brochure sitting on my desk. I'm sure that there's a lot of people that would be listening to this and don't even know what, what I'm talking having? about, but before yeah. everything was digital. Yeah, that was really funny. But yes, now I think anybody that has software, I think sometimes considers themselves to be a designer. And then there's a lot of less expensive ways to get quote unquote design. So in a way I'm kind of branding myself, um, you know, you'd get more than, than just the design. I mean, there's mm-hmm. plenty of people who can get, do the design. I, I don't want the people for clients who want uh, a cut rate design. That's not who I want it to be. So I've tried mm-hmm. to go the other direction and I know I'm expensive, but you get what you pay for. Yeah, well, it's consultative, right? And I think that a lot of times the less expensive solutions can end up being more expensive in the long run. Well, there's simple things that, 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 you know, well, you would probably do it too, do intrinsically from doing Mm -hmm. this in direct mail. And there's certain things in fundraising, anybody, you can have anybody be a designer, who's a designer, design it, but they're going to miss a lot. They're going to miss, right. like, you know, there's certain things that we do in fundraising that you wouldn't do elsewhere. Corporate communications, very different, you know, mm-hmm. but I've got older eyes who are looking at my stuff yeah. <laughs> and I've got to have it at a certain point size yeah. and I don't hyphenate anything. And I indent and I put a space between paragraphs. My paragraphs mm-hmm. are short and things like breaking a line before the next page so that mm-hmm. you have to turn the page. Things that people... Yeah. You know, designers like, oh, no, no, it's got to be perfect. Got to line up, you know. Right, that's very, very different. Like you're not laying out a book or a brochure or something like that. You really, you have to understand what the objective is, right? You want them to flip the page and get to the call to action. (laughs) Plus, plus, I don't want it to be pretty. I mean, direct mail is not pretty. Uh, Disorder breeds involvement. Mm -hmm. I've had problems with my proofreaders where they're trying to make it grammatically correct. And that's not necessarily the case. I want it to be vernacular. Yeah. conversational. I want it to be more colloquial. And that is something that corporate communications or a a corporate designer wouldn't, would just yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny, Steve, because, you know, I worked in marketing for a long time and mostly in banking. And if I was doing a brochure for a particular product or something, I'd have to send it to the product manager, maybe the head of the business. And, you know, a lot of times people would come back with these grammatical, like, don't start a sentence with and, and I'm like, <laughs> yes, uh, you know, this is conversational, you yes, know, I'm gonna not say your, you know, junior year English paper, you know, well, that's why I'm glad I'm not a writer because everybody thinks they're a writer, you yeah. know, because they, they took, you know, basic writing in college and, yeah. and, you know, it's a different type of writing. It's yeah. a different Co- type of writing. Yeah. Copywriting. And I'm sure they're, they're very capable, but yeah, of course, of course we could have a whole nother podcast oh, yeah. about how everyone considers themselves to be a marketer because they've consumed right. a lot of marketing. <laughs> well, well, I'll just say this. And I've said this ever since you and I worked back at Seabury and Smith, it's a lot easier to edit than it is to create. So that's the thing. And that's fine. I've gotten at at this age, happy to glad changes don't bother me. It's when you get into the, when you try and change the big picture, when you're trying to change strategy, that's the problem. I have to look at everything from the mile high view. It's like, all right, if they want to put in, you know, this here, fine. You know, they want to, they want me to put that in a box. Okay. doesn't change Mm -hmm. a thing. You know, it it makes them happy and whatever. So, um, but yeah, that's the big deal. 
I think that's the bigger deal. That That's one of the challenges I have also is trying to get people to stay on strategy. Yeah, <laughs> or to have and, a strategy. <laughs> but, or know, even know what it is. I had yeah. somebody tell me that they put an asterisk on a reply form in the dollar amounts, you know, Will you give five dollars? You give twenty-five dollars, and usually we put an asterisk on the middle one because everybody goes for the middle one anyhow. That's mm-hmm. just human nature. But we'll put a little asterisk and then some text under it says, "Usually, most people are giving this amount, or this yeah. will help a lot." Mm-hmm. Well, this particular writer just had an asterisk with nothing underneath it. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Okay." I said, "Aren't you going to write anything? People are going to look for that." She's, "It's strategy." It's like, "No, it's a tactic. If that's your tactic, yeah. that's fine. Let's <laughs> test it. Let's see how it works." But, you know, it's not a strategy. So, yeah, yeah. I, I know sometimes it's probably worthwhile to look up the meaning of strategy. Yes, yes. But, <laughs> you know, but trying to get people to understand that's not strategy and what the difference yeah. between tactic and strategy. I'm all about throwing tactics and stuff. I can do that all the time, but I never, ever presume to change my client's strategy. I'd like to help them form it, but change it's not my... Not, not my pay grade. Yeah. Well, it's always helpful when that remains consistent, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of like going on a trip and getting halfway to your destination and the des- deciding that you want to go in the opposite direction, yeah, right? Yeah. That just, it's not a very efficient way to right. your goal. Right. Um, well, so this might be kind of a good segue from this conversation. Uh-huh. You know, what do you think some of the biggest challenges are that are facing marketers today? Oh. Well, first of all, I think a lot of people think the word marketer is a dirty word. Mm. And, and I, I think that's a challenge is trying to overcome perceptions, mm-hmm. you know, that we're not a used car salesman. We're not a, mm-hmm. sorry if anybody's a used car salesman, I don't mean to <laughs> insult you. And just that that's just, a, you know. Uh, yes, the old cliche. Yes. Yeah, cliche. I think the biggest challenge is imparting our value and mm-hmm. what our value is. This is what we bring to the table. And this is why you need to hire us. We're here as big thinkers. We're not here to just to do your flyers and your, you know, whatever. We're happy to do all this Make stuff. it pretty. But, you know, the head of sales used to come through the marketing department and say, this is where all the fun stuff happens. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then and we just go, uh-huh. And we just roll our eyes. You're like, uh, okay. <laughs> That's when I used to mind stabbing myself in the back with an X-Acto knife. But yes. Yes. Uh, no, people don't even know what that is anymore, but yeah. So yeah, I think that's, that's the perception is that the other thing is this is where the fun stuff happens. We're not serious. You know, we're yeah. busy, you know, and, and we're deadly serious. Right. And oh, this is, this is the big one. This is the one, this is my biggest pet peeve. And I met in, in, in graduate school, I ran into somebody, I went to the advertising program at Syracuse and there was one guy, he thought that the whole thing, and I had a boss like this too, that, that thought marketing uh, was, pulling the wool over the audience's eyes, proving that you're smarter than they are. And I'll tell you what, my audience is really damn smart. And I rather speak up to them and Mm -hmm. trust that they're smart and let them draw the conclusions in a lot of ways. I mean, I'll draw them a line, Mm -hmm. but I'll let, you know, they have to make do the walking. But I I just think that it's ridiculous to think that you're that much smarter than everybody. I know there are smarter people than me out there. I don't want to presume that they're not, that they're not smart. Also, the other thing is, I always tell people that this is what I do with design, anything that I do with the design, any kind of little tricks or anything, I let the audience in on, I let them in on the joke. So they're laughing with me. I'm not laughing at them. I'm laughing with them. You know, we're not fleecing them. We're not pulling the wool over their eyes. There's two sheep analogies. Yeah, right yeah. There. It's about building a relationship, I think, Absolutely. and building, building trust. Absolutely. You know, it's funny when you were talking about this, you know, 
my husband, Scott, and mm -hmm. we've been married for 25 years now, but we got in a big fight when we were dating because he, with disdain, was talking about direct mail as junk mail and how it was so horrible. And I, was, I got very offended, of course, because that's what I did for a living. Right. And I was just trying to explain to him, how would you know about some of the things that are offered if it wasn't for marketing? Can you imagine going into the grocery store and shopping if you had to pick out each individual thing and there were no brands and there was nobody to educate you about what the benefit of one brand over another is? You know, the world would be pretty chaotic without marketing. Um, I think that's very, very well said. Yeah. I mean, a lot of my career was spent in B2B marketing and banking. Yeah. Very exciting. There were a lot of very complex solutions that we offered. And I was the person that had to stand between our audience that needed the solutions, but maybe didn't necessarily understand them. And these very technical people that were among other technical people and just spoke this language that they just assumed everybody understand. I had to be the person like, serving as the bridge to translate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of value in that because people need this, but maybe they don't know that they need it, or they don't know the benefit of using a particular solution. Sometimes people don't know what they need. You were saying how our consumers are smart. Yes, they are smart, um, but they're not an expert in everything. And sometimes you do need to hire a company or you need to buy something that's going to solve a problem that you don't understand fully. And I, I do think that that's, uh, you know, part of the role that marketing plays. Oh, absolutely. It's funny, you, Brooke and I were the opposite of you and Scott. I was the one calling it and people would say, what do you do? I design junk mail for a living. And she would get <laughs> mad at me and say, don't tell them that. That's not true. You do more than that. And it's not right. junk mail. So it's funny. That's funny. Um, yeah, I did some business to business and business to government, which is if you think business to business is a yawn. Mm -hmm. You've got to hit the buzzwords and you got to hit this because that's all they're looking for. And they're just total jargon. And, and the fight to get out of that um, trap of speaking only in jargon is kind of difficult when you're, you're dealing with salespeople who all they care about is their million dollar commission on a large enterprise computer solution. Yeah. And yeah. It's been interesting to me sometimes how the product managers or people that are in very specific businesses, they know it so well that it's really hard for them to have the perspective to put themselves in the client's shoes or the yeah. customer's shoes yeah. to, to see it from their perspective. And I really think that's the role that marketers play, right? That we're sort of like the advocate for the customer that we're standing there saying, okay, what does the customer need to understand and know to know whether this is a good fit for them? So it's really, it's a lot about education. Of course, it's about driving demand and that kind of thing too, but I, I always think education first, right? Like we're going to let you know that this is available. Well, you, you kind of uh, made me think of something else. You, you kind of need to put yourself, and that's, that's what a good marketer can do, is put yourself in the client or audiences, or, and in my case, donors shoes. Mm -hmm. And what do they need to know and what do they want to know? Like I have, I have different audiences within my spectrum. You know, I always joke that the high dollar donors really don't care that much as long as they have good uh, cocktail conversation. I'm giving this, did, did you know that that the chimp there are 240 chimpanzees and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, but, but, you know, it's really not just that. I mean, they're really interested. And that's just how I explain it to people who don't really understand it. The donors really care or they wouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah, and yeah. Same with your customers. They're interested. 
they're already, they're, you've already piqued their interest somehow, or they're curious. You've got an audience. It, they're yours to lose at that mm-hmm. point. So, Yeah, I think it's a matter of understanding what it is that people are buying, right? Because it's not always, you know, if you think about buying a new vehicle, it's not, it's not always about just getting between point A and point B, because if that was the case, we'd all be driving like the cheapest car that you can, can buy. A lot of times people are buying like prestige or fun. So you just have to think about like, what is it that they want out of this relationship? Right. And communicate to them about that. So yeah. What, what motivates them? Yeah. And, and our job is to compel them to act. So right, exactly. And I think that a lot of times people are really glad that they did, right. That there's, oh. there's sometimes a little fear when it comes to finalizing a transaction. And part of our role in marketing is to encourage people to take action. And I think, of course, there's sometimes buyer's remorse, but I think that the majority of the time people are probably glad that they went through with the transaction. Because well, I- yeah, Especially and if, if, we, if it yeah. delivers, right? If we're doing our job right, and, and if the client or the industry is doing their job right, there shouldn't be buyer's remorse. Everybody knows what they're right. getting. I, I wouldn't want to go and buy a car and then see that they know, oh, it's crap. You know, I don't, it takes me forever to buy a car. You know, it takes me years sometimes to buy a car. I was but thinking I drive... about your, your, the car that you had back when we met. You had that like Subaru Brat. Yes. <laughs> probably well, a collectible that... now. <laughs> well, it, I'd still, I'd probably still have, well, I, I bought a Saturn after that. And I'd I still drive that. that if it hadn't been in a flood. Oh, you know, so yeah. I'd drive until the wheels fall off. I mean, the, the last car I had for 13 years and seriously. So, you know, I have a good relationship with my mechanic, but the, the truth of the matter is, and this is the thing, you know, I'm buying a car for durability. I'm not, mm-hmm. granted, it has, yes, I have aesthetic autism and I don't mean that to be insulting. To people well, when it comes to cars. <laughs> well, when it comes to, and it comes to houses and it comes to a lot of things. It's like, I have to like, I, if I'm going to drive it for 13 years, I have to like the way it looks. Yeah, and sure. I think everybody feels that way. Like there's, there's a house we drive by on our way to the grocery store and it's a lovely house. I really hate that light they put over the garage. And that's what <laughs> she says. Is that yeah. that Brooke says? Yeah, that's that a, that's, the whole house for you? That's yes. the artist in you, right? right. Be like, that's the the first house thing. If we bought I could that house, never buy that house. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, you know. um, Steve, we're we're getting down to the end of our time together. So I I want to just ask you if is there anything that I didn't ask you or anything that you want to tell the listeners that we haven't covered? Oh, geez. Yeah, that'll be your next podcast, right? <laughs> now, I could just go on forever. I could always have you back because no, you are okay. a wealth of well, that, knowledge. That'd be fun. This was a blast. What would I like to tell people? Uh, truly, I think the thing is that, that you're all on the same side, your client and your customer. Um, always you're all on the same side. I think that the thing that I just reiterate what I said before, um, you want to let them in on the joke. You know, you're not trying to get over. Oh, all right. This, this is an example. All right. This, and I'll shut up after this. But when I was at Capital One, we started marketing the Hispanic market. We started marketing to Spanish speakers. And it was very difficult because they're different types of Spanish. Sure. So if you speak Spanish that's spoken in, to Mexico to someone in Spain, they'll be insulted because mm-hmm. it's more colloquial sure. and they think of it's low class. But if yeah. you speak Castilian to people in Mexico, they think you're just, you're putting on airs and mm-hmm. they don't want to listen to you. So it took them a year and a half and they, they fell on a type of Spanish spoken in Venezuela that kind of fits right in the middle, but it speaks mm-hmm. to everybody. Oh. I, I use that as an example, is that's what you want to do. You want to speak to everybody. It doesn't speak down to anybody. It's aspirational, but it's not an insulting way. Mm-hmm. 
So that's kind of, I guess, the thing I want everybody to say is- So like making a connection, right? Yeah. It's, it's, oh, I think absolutely. it's about, I really think marketing is about building relationships, right? Well, that's what fundraising is. You're definitely building relationships. What do you want? Yes, I want your donation, but it costs me a lot of money to, to solicit you in the mail, you mm -hmm. know? So if I'm mailing an acquisition package, I'm going to lose money on it. Because right. you're going to give me, you know, but I want to keep you around for three or four years so I can mm -hmm. make up that money and then some. So yep. yeah, I want to build a relationship with you. So mm -hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. yep. So Steve, where can people find you? Oh, okay. In a, in a dark hole <laughs> in Annandale, Virginia. No, my, my website is www.dr-2.com. And you can get in touch with me at steve at dr-2.com if you're interested in, in speaking further about any of the platitudes I've spouted today. Direct mail, design, all um, kinds of stuff. We didn't, we didn't talk a whole lot about digital, but that's the other thing I would say is not to silo your digital and your, your, uh, your print. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, integrated, that's integrated marketing's where it's at. It's a yeah. buzzword, but, but what, and, and what that really means is that you, everybody has to play nice. That's really all it means. And be client centric, right? Because it's, it's annoying when you get competing messages from the same organization through different channels. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's true. You have, you know, and, and, and you have, you know, different people who decide this is what it's going to look like, or that famine is easier to market than, than <laughs> what the, Donald the election results. Yeah. yeah the election result. So, you know, those are the kind of things that I would say that, that you have to play nice. Um, well, Steve, it has been so great talking with you again. I feel like, you know, we could just pick up at any time, anywhere <laughs> yes. and talk forever. I'd love to have you on later on. Once I've gotten a few other episodes under my belt, I'm sure we could come up with another topic that we could uh, talk for an hour about. <laughs> yeah. I want to wish you a, a happy and healthy 2021. Well, thank you. Same to you and to your family and to your dog. Oh, yes. Yeah, she's right here. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Bye-bye, Steve. Carrie. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Mambo. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, like, and share. I'd love to hear from you. Check out the show notes for my social media and contact information. Until next time, adios.